happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Cool People Did Cool Stuff, the podcast that doesn't have a tagline because the tagline is in the title. I'm your host, Margaret Kiljoy. With me today is an absolutely fantastic musician, the one and only Jolie Holland. Jolie, how are you? I'm utterly thrilled to be here with you. Yay! I'm glad you're here. Our producer, Sophie, who is better known for her work as a dog mom to one of the two best dogs in the world. Sorry, three best dogs in the world. Uh, Anderson. Uh-huh. Yep, that's Sophie. No notes. Yeah. Jolene, what's... Uh, I, I wrote in the script, do you have any pets? But before we started, we we made this clear. But do you want to introduce the listeners to your pet? Or pets. The, the dog the dog in my life is his name is Jocko. He's not named after Jocko Pastorius. He's named after the werewolf cartoon character that Michael Hurley has drawn for a number of decades. He's that Jocko. I he's, do not know either Jocko, guy. so it <laughs> it was like it was like Mark is not gonna go any of that, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> He's a nice dog, though. Oh, he's a very, very, he's a very, very handsome boy. He's very beautiful. I love him. And our audio engineer is Ian. Our theme music was written for us by Unwoman. This episode is part two of a two-part series on Isabel Eberhardt, a.k.a. Seema Khumar If you haven't listened to part one, not only will none of this make sense, but I will be personally not not mad, just disappointed. I really thought we'd raised you better than that. <sighs> Where we last left our hero, she just fled Algeria because she may or may not have hit a cop with a sword. She goes back to the villa. Dad is despondent about the death of his long-term partner, which is a reasonable position for him to be in. And then her brother, Vladimir, has an even worse time because his traitor brother, Nicholas, tries to abduct him. His brother, with a bunch of Russian spies, shows up and says, I own you body and soul and you're coming with me. And Vladimir refuses. He wants to hang out with uh, at the villa and work on cactuses. That's super scary. And it's kind of he's kind of broken by the experience. He starts losing track of what's happening. He just sobs in his room until one day, not too long after, he decides to get a head start on Sylvia Plath and puts his head in a gas oven and dies. 
Her father, doubly despondent, writes a letter to a friend saying, my cactophile is dead. Because Vladimir was the kid who took after his dad's love of cactuses. Or his Devastating. stepdad's, but. And she's alone in the villa now, and she's caring for her alien and aging father. It is not nice times. She almost marries this, like, Turkish diplomat guy, but he gets really needy and starts acting like he owns her. So she's like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm not marrying you. And her dad is real sick. He has throat cancer from the smoking. I don't know if you knew this, but uh, smoking is actually not good for you. It's actually bad for your health. Despite all of the cigarette ads that we run on this show. I don't think we get cigarette ads. <laughs> uh, the know. idea of getting cancer back in those days is, is so terrifying. Yeah. I mean, it's, ter- it's terrifying now. Yeah. Yeah. So he, he gets his affairs in order. Like he arranges money as best as he can for his, his remaining kids, the two who aren't traitors. And he leaves really detailed instructions for how to take care of his cactuses. And then he dies of throat cancer. Some people say that Isabel poisoned him, but if she did, which I don't think is true, it was to end his suffering. The people at the time who said she poisoned him were the Russian siblings who are conspiring against her and Anarchy Dad in order to try and get the money from the estate, basically. Yeah, so they're just they're just talking shit. Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't put it past this Russian nihilist to be like, Isabel, bring me my murder pill or whatever, you know? I don't know. Oh, whatever. yeah. Yeah, I've had family friends in hospice and that's that's a not a unlikely story yeah so isabel's like well fuck it back to adventuring it is possible that at this point she steals 140,000 swiss francs from the villa in order to keep keep it from falling into the hands of her russian half siblings i don't actually think she did but it's like part of what they allege against her along with like poisoning dad it's like Stealing 140,000 francs or whatever, which I couldn't figure out how to convert into modern money. It's a bunch of money. So she gets dressed up in her best men's clothes. She takes off her Tunis, the capital of Tunisia, which is also now a French territory after they stole it from the Ottomans, who stole it from the people who live there. She dives right into hanging out with sailors. She does what she does best. She gets there. She hangs out with sailors. She fucks who she wants to fuck. She does what she wants to do. She dresses as a man, and she demands that society view her and treat her as a man, but she's not actually disguising her sex or to use, just to use more modern terms, her gender. And how old is she at this point? Like 20, 21. Okay, wow. Yeah. The no, the, the stuff in her life happens fast. <laughs> like, at one point in this, I'm just like, wait, what? She's only like 24 when it's her, I don't know, anyway. Yeah, it's stunning. Yeah. And she's sort of a trust fund kid, like, for the best possible reason, which is that her dad robbed her granddad. But she's still a rich kid who wants to go live in a colonial land. So she rents a a nice house on a hill. She gets a dog named Dadale, a black spaniel. And she hires a servant, a 75-year-old local woman. And at this point, she's really just living as a man, at least in her public life. See, Mahmoudsadi is his name. As far as we can tell, it's not that people believe she was a man. It's not like people thought she had a dick under her robes. And it gets into this shit that, like, as we were talking about a little bit last time, generally speaking, the Muslim world is a better place to be gender deviant and sexually deviant than Europe for an awful lot of history, including probably this period. None of it maps easily to our current definitions of sexuality and gender. Europe had its own conceptions of the time. Homosexuality and heterosexuality were both coined and starting to be understood around this time as codified things. 
the Ottoman Empire had its own thing going on, which I think, I'm not an expert about this, define things more by acts than identity. So, like, it worked for Mahmud to just be Mahmud. She wasn't cross-dressing, she was just dressing. And within European conceptions, she might not have been gay because she was fucking men, possibly exclusively, although she did go to brothels to hang out as an observer at various points. Whereas the Arab world at this time, in contrast, was kind of like, look, I don't want to be rude, and she says she's a man, so I guess I'll call her a man. This politeness and this attitude of taking people as they ask to be taken, it sees her well for the rest of her life, which is frankly how my, my grandparents' generation has tended to handle my transness, and I don't know, it works for me. Sometimes it's nicer than all the, like, fucking around about specifics. Uh, if I was going to force her into a modern category, it might be gender fluid. Historians want to work really hard to make her, like, be actually cis by just and just pretending to be a man for safety, but that it absolutely goes against what she said. But at the same time, she also was not, by any modern conception, transmasculine or a trans man. She referred constantly to herself also as a woman. She would refer to herself as both at a regular, I don't know, whenever she would want to. People also wonder, this is the promised what types of sex did she have segment. People also wonder how she never got pregnant, and there are two main guesses people present. First, she might not have been biologically capable. There's, like, so many... I'm not even... Like, even ruder than conjecturing about, like, uh, how she fucked, I think, is conjecturing about, like, her body and how it presented and, and stuff about fertility, so I'm not going to get into that. People have various ideas about how she didn't have periods, maybe, or something. I don't know, whatever. We we'll, won't get into that. And second, she might just not have been really into penis and vagina sex. Like, maybe Piv wasn't her thing. There's this... Uh, presentation that at least was held by at least a historian I read that anal was very popular in the Muslim world in comparison to the European world because Europe was super fucking conservative at that time. I can come up with a lot of ways to fuck that don't get you pregnant, but that's one of them. Anyway, God bless historians and pop historians. Every single one of us was sitting around <laughs> and trying to figure out if Seema Ahmad liked anal. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all want to weigh in, or should we just move on? <laughs> yeah, that's the that's their business, and um, good, yeah, good for her. I for feel like you said all now. the words, Magpie. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, fair there, there yeah. it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So she's running out of money, and she fucks off from Tunisia back to Algeria because she misses the desert. She wanders poor as fuck around the desert, hanging. This is like the quintessential thing that she's now going to do every now and then for the rest of her life. She wanders around poor as fuck around the desert. The, the whole trust fund kid thing is starting to run out real fast. She's hanging out with the different tribes there, and her passport there is that she's devout. People accept her. She stays up late talking about Islam. She becomes probably the first European to really wander much of those areas unencumbered and accepted because she's not trying to show up as an outsider but as a Muslim. And people saw and respected that. It's really fascinating. And this whole time, she's writing about it for a European audience, which is like everything about, everything about her life you can see in a bunch of different ways. First, she's tying into the Orientalist fad that's running across Europe and is making her money from it. But she's also laying down a groundwork for an anti-colonialism and stirring up support for seeing these colonized people as people, not as this fantastic other. And her relationship with anti-colonialism is it's actually more consistent than her gender, but not, not a lot more consistent. She's fucking and drinking and smoking hashish the whole time and just living her best life. It fucks up her health real bad. And as like a, a journalist observer role, she starts working sometimes with the colonial government. 
She spends two months helping tax collectors go around and rob the locals just to sort of see how it's done, but also participating in it directly. It's like her job. They round up all the people who haven't paid their taxes, and they all come into the public square, and she, like, reads off the list of names um, as the debtors are either imprisoned or forced to give up more of their stuff. So we could read her as, like, an embedded journalist or as complicit. Right. Right. And I think either reading is fair, frankly. And I think it'll continue to be complicated uh, in a lot of different ways. And she goes back and forth between Europe and North Africa all the time to check on her remaining brother, Augustine, uh, the, the black sheep who did the drugs but didn't have fun. He's married now. His new wife does not like Isabel Eberhardt. It's like, this lady's a bad influence on you, which is probably true. And to try and sell the old villa, which she still couldn't do because of the family conspiracy is contesting the will and all that shit. Everything is falling into ruins, and it's becoming a pretty potent symbol of how you can't go back to childhood. She writes about this a lot. She, like, goes and sees, you know, her father and her brother's grave and things like that. Eventually, the villa sells to exactly zero fanfare because lawyer fees and shit means she makes negative money off of it. Like, in the end, she walks away with negative 60 francs from the sale of the villa. But... Then something positive happens in her life. She makes her way back to South Algeria to the desert, and for the first time in her life, she falls in love. She falls in love with this Algerian soldier named Slimen. And this is politically messy. He is from a family of trader cops, local folks who work high up for the French uh, colonial police. And he himself is basically a trader. He's in the French colonial government, uh, military, sorry, uh, French colonial army. She tries to keep the relationship a secret. I think, honestly, because she doesn't want to be associated with the French military. But he, like, runs around and brags to all of his army buddies. And so, like, everyone knows. And he's in the cavalry. So every night, and it's very kind of sweet, every night he comes over to her place and with borrowed horses, and they ride off and make love in the desert and then come back at dawn. And then, once again, she keeps calling herself poor. She moves into a big old fancy house in the city of Lode that has multiple servants, or she gets multiple servants at this house. But once again, I can't tell what to make of this because probably she's just poor by rich European lady standards, not by like people who are from these poor colonized places standards. But there's this stories about how her and her boyfriend and her servants all like together as friends close out the bar every night in the area, like are just like going out and partying all together. And so this, like, servant thing might have been as much, like, a way to, like, give her friends, like, jobs and a place to crash and not actually, like, making them be servanty. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, it's hard to read it. And part of why it's hard to read, right, she has amazing security culture left over from her anarchist days. And it's why we only know a tiny portion of the political intrigue she was part of. She, like, constantly left politically involved figures out of her writing. So if she's like writing about a bunch of people, if someone there is like up to no good in a way she approves of, she doesn't write about them. And one colonial administrator, he's doing his due diligence about her when she's like comes to an area. One colonial administrator who's doing his due diligence about her and then soon spying on her and following her, uh, referred to her as still involved actively in the socialist and feminist movements um, in, in Europe and I believe also in North Africa. So we literally don't know if she ever stopped rolling with the anarchists and the socialists and shit when she had the chance um, because she wouldn't have written about it if she did. 
But well into being a diehard Muslim who writes only about how it, Islam, is the only thing she'd be willing to spill her blood for, she clearly still has some affinity for her old revolutionary roots or her other revolutionary roots. She writes this one short story, for example, about a group of Russian anarchists with one Christ who, one of the anarchists, Christ-like, accepts the punishment for all the crimes of all of his friends. And he's sent into Siberia in exile. But he's like not to be pitied because he is instead living a holy life as a, as a martyr and drawing comparison between anarchism and religion in a favorable light, uh, which I feel like kind of sums up a lot of how her politics and her political understanding is moving. Well, I mean, I even, I mean, I remember like hearing Emma Goldman talk about that, like, like mm-hmm. using like religious language. So, I mean, yeah. I just don't, I don't understand how you could even say certain things without religious language, especially at the time. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, we, we talk about martyrs all the time, right? And like, that's religious language, you know? Um, but. I love hearing how the Kurds talk about their their martyrs like in a and it seems it yeah. seems very secularized and it's very like direct and it's not like this one guy it's like everyone who has fallen in defense of this area is is a martyr yeah no it's really interesting i hadn't yeah so she's living possibly a double life not just between being see mahmasadi and isabel eberhardt but between being a colonial reporter and working sometimes with the resistance, or maybe that's what I want her to have been doing because I always want her to be doing the right thing, but none of us do the right thing except Sophie and Anderson. So, and her involvement in anti-colonialism is tapering off at this point. Her boyfriend, the imperial stooge of a soldier, he's part of this, but she does, okay, I think this actually explains it better. He's part of the Sufi brotherhood, the, the Qadariya the Qadari Brotherhood. And the Sufis, they're kind of the esoteric or mystical side of Islam. The Qadariya had been around since the 1100s. They're maybe the oldest order, and they're decentralized with each group determining their own practices for the most part. One of my best friends is a Sufi. Okay, awesome. And they're really into the, the, the Qadariya are really into the personal connection between the person and God and are opposed to the large institutions and governments and orthodoxy and all that shit that disconnect people from God. It's not a surprise that the this child of anarchists ends up with them. And absolutely. For the most part, the Sufi orders have been like peace and love throughout history, but sometimes you got to get anti-colonialism done. There's this guy. I hope he gets his own episode one day because I want to know more about him. Basically, I like leave these like almost like notes to myself of being like, I want to know more about this person. But since I have to write a new episode every single week, I don't write and read any history that isn't directly related to what I'm working on. Oh my God. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for your service. (laughs) Yeah. Um, this guy's name is, is Abdal Qadir, and he's the leader of the Qadariya at the beginning of the French colonial rule. And for years, he led, uh, held a modern military at bay with a loose affiliation of tribespeople. They hold huge ton of the country for a long-ass time. And the whole time he did it, he's fucking on it about human rights of his Christian enemies. He allows re- religious freedom for the POWs. He goes down in history as like basically like the guy who was best to the people he captured in war. Even decades after he lost, he intervened directly at great personal risk during an anti-Christian riot in the city of Damascus, sheltering people in his home with his like kids roaming out, roaming the streets, saving more people's lives. 
And he wasn't the only Sufi at the forefront of anti-colonialism. Sufis were involved all over North Africa and South Asia. But this is the, the leader of the Qadariya for a huge chunk of the 19th century. But by the turn of the century, the Qadariya are in this position where they decide that they are begrudgingly accepting French rule because they believe that it'll be temporary and they just have to outlast it and that being an open revolt against it is a bad idea. Yeah, they wanted to, they wanted to avoid more bloodshed. Yeah, basically. This is the attitude that Isabel is working with to greater and lesser degrees for the rest of her life. She's fighting for autonomy and holding on to Islam and cultural values while without trying to specifically overthrow the French government. And occasionally she works to further the French government because a lot of times when people want to avoid further bloodshed and like seek peace, they do so by working with their enemies, you know, historically. Yeah, it could almost be seen like her moving toward a, a liberal stance. Yeah, and like a... But it's interesting because she doesn't come across it as like she's not getting into it as like this like European liberal woman who's calmed down. She's like learning it from this Sufi brotherhood that she joins, even though brotherhood is in the name. Yeah. She, the order she joins, Kateria, it's open to any Muslim man over the age of 18. And they know she's not technically a man. They don't care. There's a few other women in the ranks of the Brotherhood at this point as daughters and widows who have inherited some status within the organization. I'm unsure whether other women had been like directly initiated or whether they'd only kind of inherited their way in. But so it's it's either they were like, whatever, we don't care that you're a woman or they're like, whoa, you call yourself a man, so fuck it. And yeah, so cool. I know. And, and the thing that's unprecedented about her joining isn't her gender. It's that she's European. She doesn't write much about her Sufism. It's part of, I think, this whole security culture thing, and that shit was secret. So no one quite knows how important it was to her. It was obviously very important to her, and she, she writes about some of it, right? But it, she kind of leaves it out of a lot of, including her diaries and shit. Have either of y'all been to a mosque ever? I have not. My Sufi friend took me to the Women's Mosque of America, and it was like one of the loveliest times I've ever had in any kind of religious setting. It was so beautiful. And I was raised in a really stupid cult, so I hate religious stuff. Ah. Like even like mm-hmm. my parents, my poor, dumb parents met as as like Jehovah's Witnesses. And like mm-hmm. I so like I've had to like work really hard to like heal from that experience and like all this like family trauma around that. And like going to the mosque was the loveliest religious experience I've ever had. It was called the women's mosque of America. Very peaceful, beautiful place. There were a lot of women who were raised in the nation of Islam and Mm -hmm. came back to like regular Islam and it was just like, it was so, it was such a diverse environment. It was so, it was so cool. And it, it didn't feel uh, religious-y to me. Like it, it felt just like people trying to support each other in living a good life. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense. That's like one of the main things that religious institutions like are capable of being used for and, and in a lot of ways come from. Uh, you know what else is capable of? No, I don't really have anything good here. Um, but we're gonna interrupt your listening, make you press the forward button probably six or seven times on mm-hmm. your podcast listening app because advertisers. Till you hear on woman again. Yeah. 
Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast, I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Yeah, actually, that's the. I feel like that's one of the most important parts of the musical cue in the podcast is so that you know where to stop. No, literally, I, I had people that were like, no, I don't really want to have music ad bumpers. And I was like, yeah, you do. It's part of the listeners. Uh, quality of life (laughs) so these are some of the happiest days of her life she's participating in cool mystical secret rites she's living with her drug buddies and or servants she's sick a lot and her boyfriend uh, Slimane is sick a lot too and I feel like this often gets left out of stories of adventurers is that like actually like not everyone's like fully able-bodied at all times as they like do these things you know And they go ahead and get married at this point, although religiously and not legally, because Muslim weddings are not enough for the French authorities. But she marries him, and she makes it clear that she is not his servant, and she's as as much, she's more his brother Mahmoud than than she is his wife and servant. 
Beautiful. And yeah. Remember how her dad was involved in a plot to fuck up the Russian royalty and how that keeps catching up with her? It catches up. Oh with no, her they again. they they come back. Yeah. What happens? Yeah, they yeah. they hold a grudge. Uh fucking Russian aristocracy. You 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 got to get it done. You got you can't let them come after you. They have the means. Yeah. So, the Russian conspirators, probably her brother Nicholas, write a letter to the colonial authorities being like, Isabel Eberhard is a fucking spy who hates France. This might be true, might not be true. And she totally killed Alexander Trofanovsky in order to steal his money and keep it from the rightful heirs. That's the, that's the real black sheep of the family right there. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's like possible that she stole some money from the estate. I don't care at all. But it is, it's not good that her reputation and the crimes of the, her family are catching up with her. Slimane is transferred pretty much just to fuck with them, the two of them, to a frontier city called Batna. And she decides to go with him. But first, some worse shit happens. This isn't an ad transition. It's just an assassination attempt. She's hanging out with some of her fellow Sufis, working to translate a letter for someone in January 1901, when a fucking dude with a fucking saber hits her three times with a goddamn sword, once on the head and twice on her arm. And she survives. She actually jumps up and tries to go for a sword on the wall, but the blow to her head had her fucked up and she collapsed. The assassin gets away and he yells basically like, I'm gonna go get a gun and finish her off. That's my paraphrase. I believe Pretty you. quickly. I believe yeah. you. That seems like a direct quote. I'm on board. I mean, it's, 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 pretty, it's pretty direct, just uh, vernacularly yeah. changed. He's like, I will go get a gun and return and finish this job. Pretty quickly, they figure out that it was someone from a, a rival Sufi brotherhood, the Tijanaya. Oh, no. He's caught. And he's caught because the, the head of her Sufi order goes to the head of that Sufi order. And it's like, if you don't give this dude up, it's going to be really bad. It's just going to be really bad. And so they give him up. He gets caught. And he says God told him to kill her. Meanwhile, Isabel... Her hand is almost severed from her wrist. It's like cut through the bone. Fucking hell. Yeah. The blow to her head wound it up like negligible because a washing line had deflected the full of the blow. And she recovers. She spends four weeks in the hospital, but she's never able to bend her arm at the elbow again. I think that's where the third blow got her. Almost certainly, the guy had been sent by the colonial administration to kill her. The administration immediately after the attempt, puts in motion a campaign of slander, specifically that she'd been fucking the head of the Sufi order. Almost certainly she hadn't been in this particular time. And as soon as she gets out of the hospital, she rides off to Batna to reunite with, with, with her boyfriend. Slamen says he wants to marry her legally this time, but the commanding officer disallows it for, quote, reasons I won't tell you. So he knows some and shit. In May. Yeah. In May, they just straight up kick her out of the country. They don't want her there. Too much trouble. So she goes to Marseille to live with her brother, Augustine. But Isabel Eberhardt, you just don't, she doesn't stay down. As soon as she's in France, she starts writing more again and getting published. And she starts politicking really hard for two ends. One, she wants Slimane transferred to Tunisia. And two, to get it so that she can marry him legally. Which involves like basically like writing all these high up people being like, I'm not so bad after all. Let me marry my boyfriend. 
Meanwhile, her assassin goes on trial, and she's allowed back into Algeria for the trial. Everyone wants her to dress up as a European woman instead of a Muslim man because she'll get, like, more sympathy and shit, right? And she comes up with this compromise. She's like, I'll dress up as a European man, but she doesn't want to dress up as a woman. But in the end, and this is left out of some of the faster versions of people telling her story, she dresses as a Muslim woman in the end. She decides it's the safest thing because she wants to keep the cross-dressing out of the trial as much as possible. Like in Case's defenses, she was cross-dressing, so I had to kill her. Yeah. Which, when he was put on the stand, was his defense. She was cross-dressing, so I had to kill her. Ugh. I mean, this is, it's kind of shades of Joan of Arc a little bit. Joan of Arc's trial. I haven't done the Joan of Arc episode yet. I've been really looking forward to it. I only know the, like, Cliff's notes of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. She, but, I mean, she, you know, she dressed as a man in yeah. battle. And also some people say as like to somehow to protect herself from being sexually assaulted in jail. Mm-hmm. But she was uh, convicted by the court for, for a cross-dressing. Yeah. Never change anti-trans bigoted societies. Never change. In her politicking, she makes and about the trial, she makes one thing clear in the papers. She was not and has never been a Christian. She has not been baptized. This was not an act of Muslim barbarism against a good Christian woman. And more importantly, so basically she's working to make sure that this trial doesn't play into Arabophobia. Awesome. And in clever ways, she manages to avoid saying it was the French government that tried to murder me. But she said it was the French government that tried to murder me. Like in all of the like weird politicky ways where you're like, everyone knows that's what she's trying to say, but she does it and like covers all of her bases because she's fucking smart. Did she, was she covering her head in court? I don't know the answer to that. I know in general she shaved her head and like most of the time wore a fez. I don't know about her specific court clothes. Amazing. But yeah, she hasn't had hair in a long time. But I suppose if she, she comes up as, in, as a Muslim woman, so probably. So why we think, why I think that this assassin had been sent by the French government. The French government was like really eager to fuck over this assassin, whether they'd hired him or not. It's, and it's possible that he had been wanting to kill her as an affront against Islam, but it's more likely been paid to by the French. He'd gone on a trip to the city without any money and come back with a bunch of spending cash shortly before the murder. And 30 years later, a colonial official who liked Isabel dug more into it, but all of the relevant records had been, quote, eaten by rats. And so basically there's a cover-up as soon as all this happened. Yeah. But even... And some, some evidence of some blood money. Yeah. Even though this was their guy, the French government wanted to pin the assassin as a religious zealot and make him useful in a crackdown on Islam. So he was found guilty, and he was sentenced to a life of hard labor. During the trial, the French also decided to give Isabel her formal "You're banned forever from Algeria letter. She was allowed to keep the sword he'd tried to kill her with, though, as a memento. Oh, God. And she held on to it for the rest of her life. <laughs> She's like, you know, if I'm like, yeah, that's Saber, that's the Saber that uh, dude tried to kill me. As soon as she leaves the court, this like fucking rules, as soon as she leaves the court, she sets about on a campaign for amnesty for her assassin. 
it works, and she gets a sentence knocked down to 10 years instead of life of hard labor. And at this point, she's like starts, her anti-colonialism is shifting yet again. At this point, she's like trying to prove that Muslims are just as smart and capable as Christians. And she wanted Slimane, her, her husband, to rise in the ranks of the very, in her letter, she's like, rise in the ranks of the very same agencies to whom we owe our misery and become learned and read the classics and shit. And she's kind of losing me with that strategy, but what she got into. Everyone in her family that's left, it's just her and her brother, well, besides the two that don't count, they're destitute at this point. Like, they're pawning their fucking clothes. As they're like, sorry, coat, we need food more. She gets a job as a dock worker, even with her fucked up arm and translating letters. And she's still away from her husband. Uh, meanwhile, Slimane, he gets acquainted with old friend of the pod, tuberculosis. <laughs> He gets laid up in the hospital and takes him a while to recover. And Isabel is out of her mind with worry. She's like, if he dies, I'm going to throw myself into battle and die too. Finally, he shows up in France and they're allowed to get married. She's succeeded at all of her politicking. She puts on a black wig and a blue dress. Marrying him in white would obviously be a lie. And they tie the knot. And there's like, why she marries in a dress, it like might have to do with kind of this like, yeah, 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 the whole point of this is to like, we're already married in the eyes of God. This is just so that the eyes of the French government let us be married so I can get the fuck back to North Africa, you know? Was marrying in a white dress a thing at the time? Because I know that's kind of kind of modern. Like, when is this happening? This is 1901, and it is presented in the book I read that she specifically was like, believed it would be scandalous. Like, there would be like, people would be talking about her if she married in white, because everyone would know that it's not true. Wow. And she, so she, I think she wrote about it. I think that's who we have it from, is that she wrote about not wanting to cause a stir or whatever, which doesn't sound like her, but she's calming down. She is getting pretty old at this point. She is 24 years old. Good Lord. <laughs> like, what a I thought I had an adventurous early, like, adulthood. <laughs> no. No, yeah, not at all. Yeah, she's putting us to shame. <laughs> Absolutely. A few months later, her husband's terms of service are up and he gets the fuck out of the military. And the two move to Algiers into some cheap apartments. She starts wandering around cafes again by herself. This is like kind of, and she's already writing in her, in her diary about how she's kind of bored and annoyed by her husband. She starts working more again as a writer. She hadn't really stopped, but she had a lag in her career because her writer um, was like perceived as like too like uneducated and essentially proletarian by like, like bougie socialists, basically. But, which is like, there's some irony, right? And also at the same time, it like wasn't quite revolutionary enough because she's just writing about daily life in Africa. Yeah. But the French authorities are fucking terrified of her and her writing and they follow her around constantly. Like it's been several years now at this point that she's just always tailed everywhere she goes around living her life. It's like part of how everyone like knows the blow by blow of like what she did and where she went, you know? Yeah, this is really impressive. Eventually, she meets an editor who loves her work, who also loves Russian socialism and nihilism and anarchism, although he's much more reformist than revolutionary himself, which honestly sounds like Isabel's style at the time. And they, they hit it off uh, at the very least as um, on a professional level. And if you want to hit it off at a professional level, you can uh, buy my new service in which you give me money and I tell you how to give other people 
get other people to give you money. Does that seem like a good strategy? You starting you starting an MLM? I'm not a Marxist Leninist Maoist. That's terrible <laughs> slander. <laughs> but now that you mention it, that is kind of how like the Marxist Leninist Maoist thing works. So I guess I won't do that. I guess I uh, I'll avoid the MLM. Seems like a bad business model. Okay. Well, instead, I'll just convince people to run advertisements during my podcast. What about that as a strategy? It doesn't seem morally uncomplicated. Okay. All right. Well, that's what we're going to do. Here's some ads. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. But We Loved is a podcast about queer history. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, your host. Growing up, I thought being gay was the worst thing I could ever be. The gay history I learned was tragic. Jerry had died of AIDS, and it's like, what is happening? It was survival. That's why it's called survival sex. But as I interviewed queer elders, I realized there was another history that I had never been taught, a history of courage and perseverance. I wanted to take control of my story and not be ashamed of it. And it was a history full of love. The joy we found in saying husband again and again and again was incredible. And while learning this new queer history from my elders, I realized they had so much wisdom to pass down. The key is to understanding yourself learning to love and embrace yourself. For My Heart Podcasts, I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and this is But We Loved. Listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Neil Strauss, host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A., I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex, and then he's very vulnerable, so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we are back. 
Hello. Hello. Hi, Sophie. You didn't say hi. Hi. Thanks. (laughs) (laughs) So she gets to go back now that she's like writing again and stuff. She gets to go back to doing what she fucking is best at and loves. She's wandering the desert. This time, she's becoming like more and more just like her thing is mysticism, right? Uh, This time in Sufi Brotherhood and all this stuff is like a big part of it. And uh, she also starts basically like in her diaries, she's like more and more after the assassination attempt, she's more and more like, I am destined to be a mystic. I don't know. If someone hit me three times with a sword, once one of them being in my head and I got saved by a clothesline, I might be into some mystic shit. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can, I absolutely understand it. Yeah. And so she starts visiting various magicians and shrines. And uh, her and Slimane move to this town of Tenez for his new job translating. Then she becomes a war correspondent and becomes embedded in the French military that's trying to pacify the southwest of the country. And then she becomes a spy for the French. This is the most morally compromised period of this story. Wow. And the whole time, everyone's like following her around being like, this radical is doing everything bad. And she's like kind of middle of the road at this point in most contexts, but it's not enough for people. And so she starts working for the French colonial government. She meets this, this like gentler, kindler colonial officer who is really into building peace treaties instead of just shooting people. And she's like, yeah, this is the, this is the ticket. This is what matters. And so she starts writing this like liberal pro-French propaganda and spying. And she starts writing about how, like, maybe it's better the French invaders than the Turkish invaders. Uh, Maybe colonization is always bad, but sometimes there's, like, little benevolent things that you can pull out of it. But at the same time she's doing that in her, like, official writing that's, like, propagandistic, she continues to write about daily life there. And she writes a ton of stuff that's explicitly how the French cultural invasion is unwelcome and unfitting and that France needs to leave people hell alone which is basically like this um, kind of pushing for a protectorate instead of direct colonial administration. This is not a positive, I'm not being like, this is good. This is just what she's doing. Yeah, and are those, and those are like published writings that she was, she was getting out at the time? A lot of them, yes. Um, some of it is, right, I'm conflating a little bit of what she's writing in her diaries and what she's writing in the papers at that point. But the stuff she's writing about daily life and how France, French cultural invasion is unwelcome, that is for papers, right? And then she's part of this, and after a few months, she's like, nope, that doesn't fucking work. She sees that the peaceably conquered people go through life without spark in their eyes, when they have fear behind their eyes. And she's like, oh, this isn't better. I love her. I know. I know. So she stops writing propaganda. She probably stops spying for the French. You know, there's there's some case to be made that at various points she's probably providing information in a double agent way at various ways but she wouldn't have written about it so yeah and um she was uh she was she was trying to trying to pay the bills too yeah absolutely and she was like hounded yeah but you know who else hounded her her new dog she has a new dog (laughs) Yay! I didn't get to learn this dog's name. You just made a hounded joke because it's a dog, Margaret. I know. know. So at this point, she goes back to doing, again, what she loves, wandering around doing journalism and adventure. 
She's sick about half the time at this point. She gets bout after bout of malaria. And at this point, she has syphilis, which is... That's so tough. You know. Sounds real bad. Yeah. Yeah. She She hasn't seen her husband in about eight months. She's cheating on him. He's cheating on her. It is not happy polyamory. She's going behind his back. At one point earlier when she's, like, being faithful to him, she, like, thinks about fucking this guy and tells her husband, like, I'm thinking about fucking this guy. And her husband is like, I'm going to murder you and then myself for even having thought oh, that. Good. And then the two of them, I know, it was a really healthy relationship. And then the two of them go out into the desert drunk with a handgun and decide to kill, kill themselves together. But instead, they stay up late telling stories and drinking more and then wake up hungover and grab the gun and go home and then are, like, fine again for a while. That's um, healthy. Just a little, you know, romantic date with your partner. More about the dog, yeah, exactly. first of all. What, what okay, do we let's know? get back to the dog. What do we know? Yeah. So we don't know very much about him. He had long black hair, and he was a, or possibly he was a long dog. It might be the way that Shut it was up. actually phrased. Was he like a do- Was he a dachshund? What's happening? Do we know? I don't know. I don't know. She's traveling around mostly on horseback. So I like to imagine she either has like a lap dog that's like riding. The it could be a her, black or she has like a long, dog. long for dogs. Oh, I would love that for her. Oh. <laughs> okay. okay, that's what she has. Great. What's his name? Yeah. Anything? I can't. I couldn't find it. I only found the old dog's name. I also didn't find out what happened to the old dog or the new dog. People just don't talk about it. It's maddening. We need to go back and just do a cool dogs of history where we learn about the dogs. I like that. (laughs) I'm down. (laughs) So, So her husband is like, I'm writing you a letter to say I found someone else. That's chill. All right. Okay. I know. Now, to be fair, she's just fucking people and not telling him, I think. But mm-hmm. actually, I'm not entirely certain. What, are this, like, what did he say? I, why do I feel like it's going to be mad rude? Oh, well, it gets... Welcome to the... Okay, anyway. um, So she's trying to go around doing her thing. She's like wandering, she's getting sicker and sicker. She's journalism and wandering and has a puppy. It's I know. It's like, yeah. I know. I know, but she's getting too sick. Mm. And so she's laid up in a military hospital in the south of the country. And she writes Slimen. She says, I miss you. I'm sick. Please come, basically. Yeah. And there's nothing like illness to make us appreciate our sickness and health partners. So Slimen packs his bags and he heads off to take care of his wife. Maybe he at least goes there. Mm. We know that he goes there. They meet up. She discharges herself from the hospital. And they talk about their future. And she's like, babe, I got a fast car fast enough to get us away from here. They talk about their future and how she's got a book waiting with a publisher in France and how she's just going to get some money as soon as it it sells. This is a lie. She's finished the book, but it's currently, the manuscript is like in an urn in her house or something. But she just wants to to believe it. Mm -hmm. I need to start, uh, I need to get an urn to keep all my unfinished songs in. Yeah, that's a, a good idea, actually, yeah. And you'll see why that is materially important uh, soon. So it's possible that he came down there to reunite. and It's possible he came down to break up. And we'll never know. The very next day, quote Slimen, we were on the balcony of my room on the first floor. Suddenly there was a roar like the procession of wagons. It came nearer. People ran by shouting, the wadi, the wadi. A wadi is a usually dry riverbed, like a seasonal run. 
I didn't understand. The weather was calm. There was no rain, no storm. In a minute, the water came down the riverbed, rising up like a wall, running like a galloping horse, at least two meters high, dragging along trees, furniture, bodies of animals and men. I saw the danger and we fled. The torrent caught us up in it. How did I get out? I've no idea. My wife was carried away. And searchers found her body beneath the stairs the next day. Most likely, she'd run down the stairs trying to get out of the house and out of the way, only to be overpowered by the water and drowned inside the house. Some of her friends believe that she used the opportunity as a convenient suicide. Uh, Slamen's account was a lie. She hadn't been carried away by the flood. Um, it looked suspicious. Years earlier, he you know, threatened to kill her. And I think some of her friends were also on a, like, you know, no one knows what happened in those brief moments. Yeah. She was buried in the nearby cemetery in Muslim fashion under a white, a white sheet. She was 27 years old. Slamen did not go to the funeral. He left immediately. It was her friends who looked after her funeral and her literary estate. An editor, the editor who kind of liked her from previous, compiled her writings into a novel, which was not entirely faithful to the manuscript, and he rewrote a lot of it because a lot of it was gone. This is a different one than the manuscript that was... So they found the manuscripts and a bunch of her writing in this urn. Yeah. And some of it had survived the flood. That's why you should keep your songs in, a, in an urn. So this editor puts out this book called In the Warm Shadow of Islam. It was a bestseller in France. Biographer Annette Quebec describes it like this, quote, This desert androgene, Amazon of the Sahara, nomad with a heart of gold, appealed to what has been called Europe's collective daydream of the Orient in the same way that T.E. Lawrence, T.H. Lawrence, did to the British psyche later, and for similar reasons. Both appeared sexually and politically equivocal. Both their conquests of exotic territory seemed to speak of more private, inner conquests intriguing to the industrial mind. Both, perhaps, by, quote, going native, served to appease the rumblings of guilt amongst the colonial powers. Both were perfect symbols of escapism for armchair romantics or for people who had been comprehensively compromised in their lives and wished they had not. And frankly, I think that's who she still is um, in a lot of how she's understood. And that's what this episode flirts with in ways that I've been trying to figure out how to navigate is this romanticization, you know, and she romanticized the shit out of her life. Slamen died three years later, laid low by friend of the pod, tuberculosis. <laughs> uh, when Algeria won its independence in 1962, they had nothing nice to say about their colonizers. This was not a like, eh, hey, you know. They systematically went through and renamed all the streets that were named after French assholes uh, and Europeans in general. They left only four, including Shakespeare, who I guess wasn't really implicated in colonialism, and Isabel Eberhardt. Uh, even the wow. I know. Even the French-Algerian Albert Camus was erased by the newly free country, but Eberhardt remained. That's, that's saying a lot. Yeah. That's what I know about Isabel Eberhardt, a complicated person who lived their best life as best they could and did not fucking compromise on trying to live their best life. She died so young. Mm, I know. It's shocking. I know. And and I wonder, you know, how much she like what we can blame on the culture at the time and what we can blame on her in terms of Orientalism. Like mm -hmm. maybe she was just like, 
got to be a little orientalist to like, you know, get get my get the story in the paper and maybe that'll, you know, help do an anti-colonialism or, you know, yeah. like I'm yeah. like you you have to just work with the culture that you're given yeah. at the time in order if you know, especially if you're in the limelight the way she was and she was using her shred of celebrity purposefully. No, you're right. And I think that's something that gets left out of it too, right? Is that, you know, even like her her compromising attitude towards colonialism in the later part of her life was like, seems to be coming from her experiences from like her husband and the Sufi Brotherhood that she was part of, you know? And so it seems entirely possible because overall um, that I've been able to find, it seems like she has a very positive overall conception from an anti-colonial point of view and specifically the work that her work did to get Europeans to understand what was harmful about what was happening in North Africa, Hmm. you know? Um, And, like, I'm focusing so much on her life right now, and I, like, didn't focus nearly as much on her writing because it's, like, a harder thing to tell a compelling story in the the audio medium. But... Yeah. No, that's that's such a good point. Yeah, she's using her her bit of celebrity everywhere she can for both keeping herself alive as best as she can and also pushing for the things that she cares about, which is uh, the cultural autonomy of North Africa. And a lot of um and I mean, you know, her celebrity was um was extremely uh minimal. Yeah. And she was she was doing what you know. It was mostly scandal. It was like tabloid. Yeah. And then people used her in a million different ways after she died. Like there's so many, especially for the next like couple decades, there were so many like plays about her life and stuff that would like create this i create her as an icon rather than a person. Mm. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I I completely get it. Yeah. Oh, she also probably died stoned, which is probably a nicer way to die. I forgot that part. Yeah. I don't know why I just remembered that. You're going to die the way that she died for sure. Yeah. Sounds terrifying. It really does. On that uplifting note, do we have any pluggables? Yay. I want to talk about my new book, Raw Dog. Uh, I wrote under a a pseudonym, Nom de Guerre, I've been using called Jamie Loftus. And people should go out and pre-order this book. Uh, it's about hot dogs, a lifelong something that you eat all the time, Margaret. That's true. <laughs> um, but yeah, so go out and pre-order should, Raw Dog by Jamie Loftus. Absolutely pre-order Raw Dog by Jamie Loftus, and you can also pre-order Margaret's book, Escape from Incel Island. Yeah, ah, we're just it's got a memorable title. Doing each other's plugs. Yeah, which actually Jolie wrote under my name. It's mm-hmm. kind of weird. Yeah. Jolie, is there um, anything that you would like listeners to know? Um, I am, my next studio record is coming together. I'm, uh, and it's going to be called Haunted Mountain. And my friend Buck Meek, who's in Big Thief, is also putting out a record called Haunted Mountain at the same time, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> And we we uh, co-wrote a bunch of songs together. And they sound a little like this. 
Oh, it was worth a shot. What? I was just trying to put um, you on the spot sorry. to sing one. No, <laughs> All right. that, reminds me of, that reminds me of like people in the airport when they're like, "You're gonna, you're gonna play the guitar for us or whatever." Yeah, no, no. <laughs> all right, it's worth a shot. <laughs> and uh, where can people follow you on socials? Jolie Holland Music on Instagram and Twitter. Awesome. We appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Thanks for thanks for having me. Yeah. It was great to get this storytelling about Isabel Eberhardt up close. And seriously, if you haven't heard it, go check out the song Old Fashioned Morphine. It is one of the best accepting that the world is doomed and it's fine songs that exist. And it's possibly where I first heard of Isabel Eberhardt. And it's by Julie Holland. I love your I love your analysis of the song, your artistic analysis. <laughs> That's what I yeah, the like, you know, the world's almost done. Whatever. Fuck it. Cool People Who Did Cool Stuff is a production of Cool Zone Media. For more podcasts from Cool Zone Media, visit our website, coolzonemedia.com, or check us out on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Pride from Tomboy X, celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. I'm Jordan Gonsalves, and I'm a journalist. Join me on my new podcast, But We Loved, where queer elders recount the amazing history they've lived through. In the middle of Wall Street, they stopped traffic. They were doing a die-in. And in the process, share little gems of wisdom for the next generation. The key is to understanding yourself, learning to love and embrace yourself. You can listen to But We Loved on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.